0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. It's wonderful to have your company. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're talking digital transition. David Banger has had a long career in the digital world, and he's acutely aware that for some organizations... Digital is not their main game. His way of thinking and talking about the five steps to digital transition are practical and approachable. David is one of many Aussies who found themselves living and working in London for a long time and his transition back to living and working here in his native Australia is a fascinating story in itself. It's all here. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Banger. David Banger, welcome to the Team Guru podcast.
1: It's great to be here, David.
0: Lovely to have you on board, David. That's going to sound funny, David. David, what a special name we have. Hey, I often think, and this is not part of our plan, you know, the name David is so common in our era. You and I are approximately the same age. When I was a kid, I don't remember ever having fewer than three Davids in my class at school. But now, I mean, when was the last time you ever met a kid called David? It just doesn't happen. I've never met a kid called David. It's going to become one of those really old man names by the time you or I in our 70s and 80s. Oh,
1: you're making me feel good about that, David. Yeah. I've often had to sign off in my organization with my initials and had people refer to me as DB as opposed to, oh, I was speaking to that David or this David. So yeah. that's how I've sort of managed around it.
0: Yeah, we have a, a dying name, an old man name very soon. Now, much more interesting than that though, David, you're here to talk to us about digital transition, digital transformation. And you've already educated me before we hit record because I wanted to talk all about digital IQ. And I think you were very politely saying, hey, you've missed the mark. There's much more to it than that. There's a lot more that we've got to get to before we can talk about our digital IQ. So I've already learned something. You're going to talk us through your five steps of digital transformation or transition actually more specifically. But before we get to that, I'd love to hear about your journey to the digital world and and your journey to the depth of understanding that you have about everything you're about to talk to us about?
1: I've had a pretty long career. I started when I was quite young and I actually didn't finish high school and go to university until I was in my mid-20s. And I started in the financial services sector and they were great and they employed me and also subsidized my education. So I completed an under and postgraduate at Swinburne. And then my wife and I decided to go off to London for a couple of years, which turned into 10. And I spent some time at an insurance company and some time management consulting, and I found myself at Microsoft. And that was before I wasn't really a deep technologist. And I'd still say today, I'm not a hardcore tech person, but I just am fascinated by the topic. And lo and behold, 10 years ago, after four or five years at Microsoft, I returned back to Australia and spent some time at KPMG, John Holland as a CIO, and most recently I was at the Commonwealth Bank as a digital executive there. And for the last two years, I've actually just been doing my own thing, which is what I've always wanted to do. And a great mentor of mine said to me, David, your 20s are for getting yourself educated, your 30s are for generating and gathering some experience, and your 40s are for harvesting that. And I'm really in the stage of harvesting my career and continuing to learn right throughout it.
0: Yeah, that's a nice story. 10 years in London, you're probably not the first Aussie who thinks they're heading over to London for a year or two and ends up being there a decade. How did you enjoy your time in London?
1: Look, I was by the time I left, I was well and truly entrenched in London, and it was the hardest thing to leave both London and also my role at Microsoft, which I I love both, but our eldest daughter was about to start primary school, and my wife just felt really, really strongly to come back home. And so we we returned home and we'd sort of set ourselves up with some other goals. We had an old house that we wanted to renovate and we did that whilst I looked for the right type of work. And I've been fortunate when I've come back as a former Swinburne alumni, I've been involved in the university now for five years. I lecture there, I sit on the business school board there and I'm chairing another board as well for the school. So it has, has its benefits in coming back and it's also much easier I think to start a business in your hometown, it just some things feel really familiar.
0: You know, that's such a common story that you have disproven the idea of an Australian or anyone else going to London and starting their career as a kind of a you know in their twenties or even thirties, and they get entrenched there to the point where you know, and I know a number of people in this situation who they they really think there is no role for them back in Australia doing what they do. You know, that's such a common kind of I'd love to come back home, but I could never do what I do here. Back home. Did you ever have that kind of challenge in your mind? You've obviously come back to Australia and created your own world, your own little empire. But was there ever a thought of that? Australia's not big enough for me now that I've been kicking it around in London.
1: David, we could have a whole podcast on this. I absolutely agree. And I also think there's a repatriation problem because your lifestyle in London and the way I was working in London, my boss was based in Munich. I lived in London. My peer group was scattered across Western Europe and the Middle East. And it wasn't uncommon for me to fly out of London one week into Paris, another week into Munich, and then into Stockholm or to Dublin. And when you've been in London for 10 years, that actually just becomes the way of life. And then occasionally I'd be off into North America and other parts around the world. And I think you suddenly realize when you come back to Australia that you need to invest the time in establishing some really good business relationships here But the benefits of when I left Australia in 2000, 2001, and when I came back in 2010, is that we had this wonderful phenomena called social media. And it was so much easier to remain connected with people. And I still have some very, very good friends that are former colleagues that I've become very, very friendly with over social media. And we remain very much connected internationally now. So. I think it has been different. I think the challenge around coming and returning back to Australia is you need to set your expectations on what you can give somebody as opposed to what you would like to receive. And I'm all about service and identifying those things that could be of value to others as opposed to this is what I've done, this is where I've been, and and, and this is what I want to do. And I think there's a little bit of a mindset shift and I think anybody who repatriates from overseas has to go through that.
0: Mm, that's a really interesting way of talking about it not about what you're going to get out of coming back to Australia but what you can give when you do. It's a very interesting topic and of course there you know as you rightly pointed out there's a whole conversation in that you know what you know what if anything we as Australia lose to London when people go off on their two year jaunt and and 15 years later they've had a family and they you know they've got a massive career there that they don't think they can have here in Australia. It's a very interesting one and As I mentioned, there's a number of people in my life who fit into that category. Now, let's get down to this. Let's talk about the five steps to digital transition. But before we do that, I'd love for you to explain to us the difference between a transition and a transformation and why you're so careful to talk about transitions.
1: I'm really careful to talk about transitions. There's probably a couple of things. If we look back on some research, and most recently in 2018 from McKinsey, we found that those organizations that they surveyed around digital and their transformations, only 16% at- achieved their stated objectives. And those that did 12 months down the track, there was a further 6% that basically said we didn't. I think that's the first point. And any organization I'm working with, if they mention the word transformation or if I mention the word transformation, it sort of sends a shudder through the executive. It sends a shutter through the members on the, this is going to be expensive. I know these things fail and this could be the last thing that I sort of do. So when I started writing my book and I started really thinking about this in my business is that I'm a big believer of building capability within the talent of an organization and then looking at that capability to be the platform, not only for that one event, but it's a muscle that has been created that can actually be used for ongoing events within that organisation, and I think digital is just one of those things. And as a footnote, you know, we mentioned people returning from London. We've had a whole heap of people return from London during this COVID nineteen crisis, and we've had a lot of organisations, in actual fact, move basically overnight to remote working practices without a large transformation program. And if you had us said in January that we would have hundreds of thousands or millions of people working out of home for the majority of this year in this country, people would have said that wouldn't have been possible and it's going to cost too much money. And we've been able to do that because there's been a burning platform and people have quietly transitioned to some practices and not everything has been perfect. I know that. And I know that there'll be some people listening to this podcast and they'll be talking about flaky internet connections. They'll be talking about not having an end-to-end sort of application, enterprise experience, maybe in a remote location but the reality is they've found a way. and Often, sooner rather than perfect, I found within some organizations is the best way to move forward.
0: Mm, We certainly have learned that lesson. You're so right. If someone had have said to us midway through 2019, okay, you need 80%, 70%, 50%, whatever it is of your workforce working from home in March next year, what are you going to do? So many large organizations, large, small, medium, would have decided they need some kind of transformation, some kind of expensive project that would have been a consultant smorgasbord, would have cost them a huge amount of money, and maybe wouldn't have been as effective as what we've all just experienced. It has been a real phenomenon, and it's not just about the transition to working from home. It's about some of the things that organizations have been able to do in terms of changing the way they provide services to their customers, engage as teammates and, and colleagues and members of staff uh, in a way that has just been so fast, adapted so quickly. And there really are a lot of positives to have taken from this period.
1: And David, I think there's significant implications and we are only seeing and dealing with the beginning of the crisis and the beginning of these practices. But if we think about commercial premises in central business districts, we think about concentration of apartment buildings in central business districts, we think about how people have actually recouped a lot of time and spent a lot more time with their family now the world's expectations and expectations of Australians, I actually think, will change as a result of this. In actual fact, I have three children. They've all remote-schooled, and some of them are still remote-schooling now, and they'll remember this year, and hopefully with some nostalgia, if we don't get become unwell or if we don't get too disrupted with the event, and I think they'll actually think about their lives a little bit differently as a result.
0: Yeah, wide-ranging, long-reaching implications, I would suggest, of this really interesting period we've been through. All right, let's talk about the five steps to digital transition. You've got a, uh, a dirty little secret for us, David.
1: Yes, we have a dirty little model. And to make it memorable, the word <laughs> is dirty. And I often, and obviously the D stands for digital, I often hang words off, uh, hang letters a- against words. And I've done this within my model, within the book. And we sort of begin with our mindset. And I'm a big believer in organizations that we have a lot of non-value adding work. And as organizations have changed and evolved and rationalized a number of resources, a lot of people continue with that non-value adding work. And I have a little model in my book and I've always wanted to include some pictures within with any book I've written. And the the first model in that book includes some visuals of four four working styles. And the first one's undertaking that work that is often done with those people who've had long tenure in your organization, high level of specialism and probably not documented. And you know what's being done, but you don't know how important it is and if something's gonna break as a result. And that's happening within organizations. And I think organizations need to have a conversation about that. They also need to have a conversation about those younger folk that are joining that want to go off and explore. And often I find when I walk into some of my clients that somebody's been told, can you go off and do that? Don't make a big noise about that and go and do some exploring. And it becomes a special black ops project. Mm. And all of a sudden they've got a great idea. They've thought about some things, but they haven't thought through everything. And, and they bring it back back home into the organization. And because others haven't involved, there's been some consequences and often doesn't get off the ground. If we look at Thomas Edison, I say this a lot to my clients, I think he was the 35th person to have a crack at the light bulb. And there was others before him. But what he was really good at was commercializing the light bulb and building a team around it. So these are the sorts of things I mentioned to my organizations. On the left-hand side of the model, which is all around how individuals operate. On the right-hand side of the model, I've got a a team that's stuck in the lounge which may be a traditional executive group there's a lot of rationalization why we shouldn't be working from home why it couldn't be possible and some other things and they're stuck with yesterday thinking and often some of these people are sitting on the executive or sitting in your boardroom and as a technology or digital leader you need to convince them there is a better way or a different way and i spend a bit of time talking to organizations about what's their mindset within that executive group and how we can give some of these people, some confidence. And the final bit of the model is all about making meaning. So it's about being proactive and community orientated, involving others and looking at looking at things that are of value to the industry that you're working within and also that broader community. And that should inform your digital agenda. And so we often start there with organizations and I try and rationalize the work, get them to identify the three to five things that they really should be doing. And I have them celebrate people who actually reduce the amount of work that they're doing and try and realign their responsibilities based on that model.
0: So that's the why in dirty. And if you're confused, David's model actually works backwards. So we're working backwards with the word dirty. Your mindset is the first piece of it. So just describe for us, David, the kind of mindset that ideally an organization has when they embark on a journey of digital transition how would you articulate a, a mindset that is ready to go transition ready
1: again i'll come back to another mentor of mine and he sort of said to me at one stage david you have one mouth and two ears and you should use that in your in that appropriate ratio and i actually think an organization needs to have a mindset of of learning and constantly striving to uncover things that they don't know and a constant level of curiosity, which is one of those words that is overused at the moment. But really curiosity is not about asking people tough questions. It's about being open to others' suggestions. And I think that's where organizations need to start. And I also think we need to free up people's time from the activities within their jobs. And often if you think about you're setting up a project team and you look at the resources you want from that project team, and you'll say, I'd really like Joe or I'd like Mary to be involved in that project. And somebody will say to you, well, they're really, really busy. And I don't know how much time they can give to this initiative. Now, if you step back mm. at an organizational level and you actually say, what's going to be of most value to that organization, it's probably that initiative over the tasks that that person is doing. And we need to set organizations up and individuals up within these within their roles to actually provide more times for initiatives. And again, I have an inverted pyramid within this book that sort of dovetails very nicely into your mindset piece around how we think about and reward individuals and teams for doing the right thing and building scale across an organization around that capability that we need for the initiatives that we want to undertake.
0: Whether it's a half-day Energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organisation. Alright, so we finished the word dirty with the Y, your mindset. What's the T stand for, David?
1: I dread to say it, but it's transparency of technology. And I think we often have technology leaders within organisations who I encounter it a lot, and I, I sort of cringe when I say this, but the word black box, again, another buzzword, but the executive and the board really won't know what's going on within that organization. And I have another visual within the book where it's a very, very simple house. There's some foundations of technology, and, and that's probably the infrastructure, whether you're a server or a or cloud-based organization, it doesn't really matter. There's some foundations there that if they're not there, everything's sort of, there's nothing to build it upon. And then there's a broader network. And as we know, working at this point in time, you know, we're dependent on networks that are external to our organization, and we need to make sure that they enable our people within that network and operating within our organization to access the applications and data sets. And obviously security is paramount. Now, many of the CIOs get caught up with when I'm working with them, they'll talk about the detail and the data from a volume perspective or throughput perspective, and the executives will sort of glaze over in their eyes as they sort of hear this language and they hear the volume of data, or they hear about megabits per second and all this sort of language. And I, within the book, I've said to people, we really need to simplify it around some core capabilities that your organizational needs, and looking at you know what is your current performance, What is the required performance? And how are you going to close that gap? And having dialogue with your executive group and with the board around the investment to close the gap. And that can be around data. It could be around security. It could be around a people capability that you need to move, where you see a lot of organizations now are reducing their infrastructure, traditional service, management capability, and employing data scientists and data capability and looking at where you're going to invest. And a lot of organizations get caught up in the complexity of the technology and are unable to simplify this and they need to make it really transparent. I think that's important for any technology leader who's about to embark on a digital journey to actually have that conversation with the exec and with the board and to be a participant because otherwise there is a risk that it will be sitting outside of the technology team and you may just be a bystander rather than a key contributor.
0: But how do you, if you're someone leading a worthwhile program in a large organization, how do you stop your exec from glazing over when you start giving them the numbers or telling them the detail about the tech that we're bringing on board? How do you get an exec that have got their view across the entire organization to really buy in, understand, spend time talking about technology so they truly do get it and can advocate for it and understand what they're buying?
1: The leaders that I'm working with, and you know, often my phone will ring, David, and it will be from somebody who says, we need help with our technology strategy. And I've said this to others that I've spoken to on podcasts and in various sections of the media, but I'll arrive at that organization and in actual fact, the technology is not that bad. There's always some things that we can improve, but the relationships are broken. And the relationships with the executive or with the board have been broken because there's either been something that hasn't gone that well, or there's been a lack of transparency and I always say to people what's your elevator pitch in actual fact if you're sitting out in a coffee store and somebody walks by to say hello and ask what you've been up to this is the current situation this is what I'm being involved in and here's the outcome and I really spend a lot of time with these executives in talking about that and then I say to them that's like opening a door I said if you can be very very succinct with that I said then you can actually." put together your agenda and I like to use visuals and I'll use a lot of visuals with my clients that are in my book and to actually talk about where things are at as on a simple dartboard, what we need to lift that capability up to and then I'll have a dollar effort amount beside that and then I'll provide the executive with choice. And I think it's really important that technology leaders sometimes come across as that they know the answer but nobody understands, they need to involve others in this conversation and provide people with a with a moment of choice and I think choice is a really empowering factor around how that executive group can influence the decisions or the direction of these things without the technology or digital leader being very fixated on something and I think that's part of remaining curious and a part of always seeking to learn and this is what I find when I'm working with some of these technology execs they're quite fixed on something and very steadfast on it, which is an admirable trait, I just ask them and encourage them to be a little bit more open and get their elevator pitch right.
0: We're talking to David Banger, who is telling us all about his five steps towards digital transition. Uh, It's the word dirty backwards. The Y, to finish the word, is your mindset. The T is about technology and being transparent about our technology. And the R, David. Well, they are also about
1: being relevant. And within this, I sort of fold in risks. And I think any organization at this point in time is going to be talking about risks and is going to have to manage their executive on the journey of how they are mitigating the potential issues that may happen within an organization. And often I've seen this within organizations where we use third parties to come in and do a risk assessment and some risk remediation. And I will say to an executive group, potentially your investment is better spent on actually upskilling your people with some risk capability and allowing them to understand what a risk is. So a risk is something that may happen. An issue is something that has happened. And how they can avoid issues is probably through controls. And controls that are provided by a third party if you're looking at technology solutions such as possibly a Microsoft Azure platform, there'll be some security controls on that. Taking those controls is really sensible. In some environments, those controls won't be enough because you could be in a very sensitive government area, could be in a financial institution and you'll have some additional controls on those controls that are provided by a vendor. And I call those things as leverage controls that an organization puts on a vendor control. But often I'll be talking with an, a technology executive and they'll be talking about, I want to prototype a piece of technology and they want to scale it quite quickly across an organization. And they won't be talking to the vendor about the controls that are available, that technology provider, they'll be looking at doing some local controls. And those local controls present some risks to an organization if they don't have the right security aspects in them. And they're temporary at best. And in actual fact, they could result in a significant issue. And so when you start to structure this sort of dialogue up around building that risk capability, having a common language within an organization and allowing people to be more risk aware and risk capable, as opposed to potentially forensically reviewed by external third parties, I think that really changes the capability within an organization. And that's what... I say to a lot of my clients when they talk to me about what digital investment we need to make across a broader organization is I'd say you want to make your people digitally aware, but you also want to make them exceptionally risk aware and how they can mitigate those risks because the decisions that they make on the ground or today could potentially help avert a significant issue down the track.
0: Right. What about the eye where we're getting ever so close to that bit that I wanted to talk about <laughs> that you so sagely steered me away from? What does the I stand for? Now, I'm going to give it away. The I stands for innovation. And here's your challenge, David. How are you going to tell us about innovation without us feeling as though we're being beaten over the head with a term we've heard so many times before? And essentially, we're being told to be be more clever. Work out a way to do what you do that's never been done before. So it's awesome. And you add value to your company.
1: Well, the first thing is I don't like organizations who have values of innovation. Because the moment you sort of set something within an organization, it, it tends right. to alienate a population, right? It just people just want to rebel. They want to do something different. So I, I try not to talk about that. What I try and talk about is the different types of employees that you have within your organizations and providing with a, them with a platform to actually get involved and being involved within the organization. For many employees, they won't be building the next piece of software or the next iPad or looking at an electronic car and a, a sort of ecosystem that's environmentally friendly around that. But they can add a lot of value around simplifying tasks. As I said earlier, looking at the things that are within their job that they potentially don't need to do, looking at how they can standardize some process across an organization. And people say to me, and I get phone calls, oh, we really want to be the Uber of our industry. And I sort of say to them, you understand that Uber is dealt with a greenfield site, not a brownfield site. And what they were able to do was standardize a process around capturing and a customer, enabling them to coordinate a ride, whether it's booking it, flagging it, whatever it is on an application, and then provisioning that service in a standard way. Can your business actually do that? Probably not in some instances, but they can definitely standardize a lot more process And then I talk to them about what is the data within their organization. And again, organizations get often caught up with the vastness of the data. We've got X terabytes of data. And I say to them, how many insights have you gleaned from that data? And in actual fact, who are the people on the ground that can connect those insights? I was working with one client that had exceptional safety data. It was fantastic. They were green on everything. But the reality was they were still having incidents when they were reviewed externally on the ground, and we found that that data wasn't necessarily affecting the truth. And then what we found was that in actual fact, those projects that had fantastic safety data subsequently also further on had bad commercial outcomes because the data wasn't transparent. And drawing these linkages is really, really important. And then I think you've got to think about who within your broader Ecosystem are the partners within that you work with that you could actually get involved or who could inspire you to do some of these things and building a community between some of your employees and some of these external parties will be really, really helpful. The other piece that I talk about is what is your dream? And I meet so many organizations and their vision and mission statements could be substituted for one another. And I don't use the word innovation, but I also I use a great example. If we think about Tesla... They've had a view for the last 10 to 15 years to be the world's provider of electronic vehicles and provide transportation in a really environmentally sensible way. And I say to them, what is your bigger vision and how are you going to galvanize your employees around that so they believe in something and looking at the selected partners and some of your key employees that could achieve that? And that's when the things start to sort of come together for people And what I've found is that it's often answering that vision question in the Tesla sense with the example is actually the hardest piece of work that we've got to do. And I think a lot of organizations in 2020 will be re-looking at that vision piece. They've moved to some internal digital practices. They have probably some temporary customer sticky tape digital provisioning online services that actually truly need to evolve and that's where they're going to have to spend their time and it's probably going to be with a couple of their key employees and I would suggest starting to really look at some of those external parties that have done this for other organizations to get involved and help them with it.
0: Hey, there was a lot to that answer and I I challenged you to tell me something new about innovation that didn't make me feel like a loser. And you actually succeeded in that because you pointed out, you stated the obvious that not everyone in every company is going to be creating the new iPhone or creating an automatic driving system. Not everyone is wired that way or, or has those kind of skills, but everyone in an organization can work at making us more efficient at doing the things that we do, whether it's through standardizing processes or looking for different efficiencies, just looking for new ways of doing things. Innovation doesn't have to be a high-tech solution to something. It can just be a smart way of doing something, a smart new way of doing something. I like that. Very good. All right. Now, we're at the big D, David. We're at digital. Now, that it seems like such a broad word that encompasses everything. What place does it have on your five-step process? Tell us all about digital. And I'd love, Sean, to- as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm fascinated with this concept of digital IQ.
1: I think digital's made up, and I spent the best part of the last five years as a CIO and as a digital executive at one organization, and in the the 12 months that I wrote the book, I, I read so much, I was a digital junkie, and I read so much, and I've sort of distilled it down into three things that I think executive groups need to understand, and I call it the MAD model, which includes the words market, digital and differentiation. And what I mean by the market is that there was a great piece of research an external partner I worked with many years ago when I was working in the insurance industry, a guy called Theodore Modus. Before it became fashionable and everybody knows this term now, it's called the S curve. We all know it. We've all heard it and we're all, where are we on that S curve? But Theodore used to come in and speak to us and talk about, you have different stages of your market and you need to treat them differently. And this is what the S-curve is really about. At spring, you have some early interest. In summer, the market is maturing. In autumn, the market has matured and is changing. And in winter, that could be the end of the market. And I think organizations need to step back and actually not think about where we're going to go digital, but actually look at what product or service they have and what stage is that in market. Now, if you're in a summer market and it's going quite well and you know what's going, into an order market, i.e. a large retailer that maybe sells a lot of clothes. We know people are purchasing things online and that has just been accelerated in 2020, is actually looking at how you can take that investment that may have been in bricks and mortar and actually put it into an online servicing proposition to your customers. And I can honestly say late last year, I was sitting in front of a retailer and actually saying I would be closing stores and investing in your online experience if you want to go digital. Now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but if they had embarked on that a little bit earlier, maybe some of these organizations wouldn't have the implications that they've had to date. So that's that's the first piece. And I think really being able to get some forensics across what your product and service is and thinking about what stage is it in market. And I say to people for spring items, what you need to think about is where your customers are interacting where people are interacting or where you have data on their interaction is possibly where there is some value that can commercialize things. So I'll give you another tangible example. The first thing that Amazon went to market with was books and books provided an opportunity for the consumer to actually interact, read a section of the book anywhere and then actually decide to purchase that book. And that's those sort of principles is thinking about the stage in the market where people are interacting Enables an opportunity for transacting. I think the next piece is acknowledging that their digital is about customer intimacy and scale. So, again, an overused example is Uber. Uber, if you're a member of Uber, probably David, you and I are. They actually know where we live, they know our preferred locations, and in actual fact, they have our credit card details. And it doesn't matter if in 2019 when we got off a plane, whether in London, whether in New York, that we could actually take that service. And it was very, very easy. So there was a level of intimacy there where I lived, but in actual fact, it was global scale and organizations need to think about that. And they need to think about what are the products and services probably in spring and summer that they could take and have that customer intimacy and looking at that global scale. And the third thing is differentiation. And I think differentiation is the bit that organizations really, really struggle with. And, you know, where we live in our part of the world, we are probably not going to have products and services that are going to be the cheapest cost. That is just something that, you know, our society, our broader community will not not probably tolerate. But based on what we're seeing in 2020 is that there is a large expectation around Australian made, Australian owned and organizations, there is a trend and I'm working with two of them at the moment around insourcing and returning to shore, offshore services. There is probably something in that that organizations can differentiate within Australia. I think brand is no longer relevant. So you need to really make sure how your product or service is different to those that were in the market. It could could be a better quality and it could actually uh, be more expensive, but being really explicit around where that quality is and why it is more expensive. Unfortunately, a lot of organisations think about our employees is our differentiator, and I love people. And, you know, the first four steps of this model is all about getting people involved and working with people. But a really interesting statistics: China have more engineering graduates every year than we have engineers in Australia. The reality is, on a people capability basis, we were not going to be able to compete with some of those international countries. And so we need to look at, okay, employees are important, but have we got them working on the right thing? I think the other thing that organizations that I really like to work with that I've found is that niches are good. You know, I'm working with a property business. They're looking at how they can make buildings smart. They're not looking at how they can make smart precincts. They're actually really focusing within their buildings, looking at the assets within that building and looking at how they could potentially reduce the cost of maintenance through actually more predictive analytics on that that piece of equipment, that asset in the building, rather than looking at setting up a smart precinct. So I really like those sorts of things. I also like partnering as well. And I think, you know, partners are something that could be important. Again, I was working with another construction organization and they were looking at how they could go to government and possibly do unsolicited proposals, which is not an official tender. And they said, maybe we could partner with Uber because the Uber guys have real-time traffic flows. They have probably some of the best traffic flow data in the world, in some of our cities. And the challenge is, I said to them is, you're probably going to be able to partner with Uber. Let's just pretend it was Uber or somebody like that. But is Uber really going to give up that data to you uh, longer term? And in actual fact, what you may be doing is you may be sharing them how to take a proposal with some of their data to the government, and actually achieve a project being signed off or approved by a government or a level of interest in there. And they may not be a competitor today, but 12, 24, 36 months from now, in that process, you've actually created a competitor. So I think that's really, really important. And these are some of the factors. There's a couple of others that are really important for the consumer that we can touch on after some more of your questions, David.
0: Well, actually, David, we are very quickly running out of time. So if you want to give us just the highlights of those and uh, before we, we're we forced to sign off.
1: Okay. Well, there's probably two things. I think the first thing is for any organization, if you're in a market and you're the only organization in that market and it's an easy market to enter, Happy days. that potentially is is a good thing initially but ultimately that market could actually be flooded by competitors. So actually having a competitor is good and then understanding if it's difficult for people to switch. So if you look at an FPOS system or if you look at a mortgage, it's a big effort to switch your mortgage and you're probably not going to do it every six or 12 months. So thinking about those scenarios where there is a high effort to switch and then thinking about, and I love using this example when I give my keynotes, I say to them, Your telco provider being, you know, some of the large telco providers that we have here decides to no longer provide you with your preferred type of smartphone, whether you're an iPhone user or an Android user, they decide no longer to do it. Are you going to remain with that telco because of the coverage that they offer? Or are you going to actually go where the smartphone is available on the telco? And that is a moment of truth for a lot of organizations. And if Mm. they're in a partnering model, or they're in an integrated supply chain and there's choices, and those choices need to be assessed to work out who truly owns the customer. So they're, they're probably the final two points I'd like to conclude on. And again, a lot of the work within my book and that mad model, you know, Theodore So I just want to reference from his work on S-curves 20, 25 years ago. There's Peter Well from MIT around customer intimacy and global scale, and Duncan Simester, another MIT professor who looks at these differentiation models that I've integrated into this mad model within the back end of my book with a little bit of my experience.
0: Well, I was going to say, and there's also David Banger, who's created a fabulous model called Dirty, a memorable model. Your mindset, transparent technology, relevance, innovation, and digital. David Banger, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks, David. Pleasure to be here.
0: And that was David Banger. Great chat. And I loved his five step approach to digital transition mindset, technology, relevance, innovation, and digital. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with David on the Lessons Learn page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.